0: Before our scripture reading, please join me in a prayer for illumination. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this, your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from the New International Version I'll be reading Matthew six sixteen through 34. When you fast, do not look somber as, somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body.
1: We are in our second sermon on the second Sunday of the season of Lent in a sermon series on fasting. It's called The Fast Life. And like I mentioned last week, the fast life is a lot slower than we may think. We're starting out with two texts from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus' experience of fasting, which we talked about last week. ...his fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness where he was tempted. Today, we're looking at a section from his famous Sermon on the Mount... ...where he gives instruction on fasting. This text from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, when you fast... ...is the only explicit place in the New Testament where we are encouraged or taught... To fast. Fasting uh, is something that happens in the New Testament. We see it a number of times in Acts when the church, the early church, is gathered together at a very important key moment and they're praying to the Lord earnestly. And oftentimes, what they do is they follow the tradition of the Jewish synagogue of praying and fasting together. But when Jesus says, when you fast, that comes across in an authoritative way, Jesus as the Lord of the church. So, when do we fast? Is one of the questions, the guiding questions in our sermon series. As we explore what Jesus teaches about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing we encounter is not only that Jesus assumes that we will fast. But given all the different options that Jesus would have had to say, this is what's most important about fasting, Jesus could have said, this is how often I'd like you to do it. This is is what exactly I'm asking you to give up during your fast. But no, he does not offer definitive guidance on these questions. The one thing he says about fasting is not how often or how long, it's this. When you fast, don't make a show of it. Especially if the show that we're putting on is to impress people. Fasting is between us and God reading again from Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. Jesus speaking, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Think about uh, something we all are guilty of in our childhood. (laughs) Do you remember the times when maybe you've been providing for a child, and they tell you, Mere minutes, perhaps, or certainly hours after the last time you fed them, they tell you that they are what? Starving, right? And some kids are just so great, and I, I will say, I'm sure I was one of the better among them in the acting category as I was a kid, who, who, who put on a show, and it becomes melodramatic, right? That you can just say, I'm starving, Uh, You can say, I'm hungry. You can also say, I'm starving. You can also say, I'm starving. And it's, oh, it's just the passion, the pathos of that experience. Trying to communicate to others our need for food. Jesus continues, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. This was a, um, what you would do in Jesus' day to go to a special occasion, even go to worship, to the temple. Putting oil on your head was like it was a cosmetic um, that, that you would do. It would freshen you up because, you know, we don't like to think of this a whole lot, but, but the whole idea of, like, water baths or showers every single day was not actually part of regular life. So oil served that purpose to freshen people up. Uh, And uh, so, yes, wash your face, put oil on your head, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is in heaven. In the few hundred years before Christ, what some call the intertestamental period, Of about 400 years between the last text that we have in the Old Testament and the time of Jesus accounted for in the Gospels. The post-exilic Jewish community, the the Jewish community that returned from exile and and again built community uh, in uh, the Holy Land, responded to the influence of the pressures, other cultural pressures of Hellenization, that's the Greek culture, and also uh, moving into the time of Roman occupation, in responding to those outside forces, they doubled down on the practice of fasting. So much so that by the late first century, the Roman historian Tacitus highlights fasting as one of the primary distinguishing characteristics Of Judaism in the Mediterranean world. Now, in order for this practice of going without food to be documented so readily by the Romans, it must have been somewhat conspicuous in its practice. The meaning of conspicuous, readily visible and observable, attracting special attention. Donald Hagner is a retired Presbyterian minister who served for many years as a New Testament scholar at Fuller Theological Seminary. In his commentary on Matthew, he notes this. He says, In the first century, fasting apparently provided an exceptional opportunity for impressing others with the extent of one's piety. Here, as at other times in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the activity um, that Jesus is talking about is a spiritual practice that became carefully designed so as to inflate personal pride. It was hard to separate the spiritual practice from the personal pride aspect of engaging in it. And he writes, Jesus tolerates no such conduct. Our righteousness is a matter of service to God and is to be directed to him. True righteousness, in the last analysis is seen in secret. Enter the social media temptation of our age, known as virtue signaling. A term that entered our vocabulary in 2004, I wonder why that year, and has been steadily rising in its use in our culture ever since. Virtue signaling is the act of expressing a viewpoint often in a pretentious or conspicuous manner, with the intent of displaying morality and communicating good character to others. It's the common practice, and some might call it the common temptation, to attempt to show other people that we are a good person by letting them know that we are in favor of certain things or not in favor of certain things. Various proposals or cultural expressions. And what makes virtue signaling so problematic is how easily we can publicly signal our virtue in just a comment. Something very quick. Your thumbs on your phone. There you go. You've said before all the world that you're that good. But are you? Am I? That's a cultural challenge that we have. And in fact, a lot of people who, are, who give their lives to various causes across the spectrum of different causes all bemoan the fact that there are always more people who claim to be in favor of that than people who actually roll up their sleeves and get involved at the grassroots level to help out that particular situation. One social ethicist, in looking for kind of the history, the ancient history of where philosophers have mentioned the negative aspects of something that you might call virtue signaling, refers to Jesus in this text on the Sermon on the Mount. That Jesus is, in effect, talking about virtue signaling, and that that is not an ethical good. It's more important that we actually do the good that we feel led to do than just tell everyone that we're a good person because we're in favor of that. Jesus encourages us not to be like a certain word, a certain class of people, the hypocrites. A word which, in its basic Greek meaning, describes a theater performer. Now, I have to walk very carefully around the use of the word hypocrite in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, it's mostly examples in a negative sense. But the word hypocrite was the word for actor or stage performer. And in a positive sense, for many, many hundreds of years, even into the time of the early church in the Mediterranean world, in the Greek language. And I have to walk very carefully because I'm married to an actress and a director of stage plays and, and uh, one of my daughters is very much involved in being an actor. And she's recently started a, a new business online. It's an Instagram business uh, on dialect coaching for those who are stage actors. Jesus uses this and refers a couple of times in the Gospels to hypocrites. Hypocrites. To describe the dimension of acting that could be understood as insincere or not authentic to one's true being. Now it comes with the territory, with actors. They're playing a part. They're putting on a role, even a mask. They put on makeup to make themselves look like someone different than they actually are. That's part of acting and that's okay. But Jesus said, hey, in our moral lives, in our ethical lives, let's try to be the people inside as we show on the outside. In fact, we even use terms from theater performances today, phrases to describe something that that we think maybe is a little bit inauthentic. Things like if someone is putting on a show or playing a role. ...or hiding behind a mask. One thing that performers are known to do... ...that we have no problem with... ...I'm sure Jesus has no problem with either... ...is to perform on stage... ...seeking the applause of the audience. And in fact, you think about some of the great... ...comedic performances on stage or in the movies... ...these these performances are, are, are kind of overblown... ...they're exaggerated... ...and they just have us howling, right... We clutch our guts not because we're hungry, but because we're doubled over in laughter. And then when that performance is complete, we stand to our feet and give a rousing round of applause. What Jesus is saying when it comes to fasting, we have an audience of one, and that audience is God. God. Fasting for the applause of others is something that Heinrich Bullinger, who's the author of the Swiss Confession that we are looking at uh, in this sermon series, the second Helvetic Confession in our Presbyterian Theology, Heinrich Bullinger, who wrote it, warns us against this in his summary of the basic characteristics of fasting. Listen to this. He says, all fasts ought to proceed from a free and willing spirit and from genuine humility, And get this, not feigned or faked to gain the applause or favor of people. It's interesting to note that Jesus' teaching on fasting in the Sermon on the Mount is followed immediately by his encouragement not to worry. Specifically, Jesus mentions worry about what we will eat or drink. Which really is one of the main concerns that we have, isn't it? When it comes to the discipline of fasting. In verse 25 and then in verses 31 and 32, Jesus says this in chapter 6 of Matthew. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or, and what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than food? than clothes. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. When you break it down to the basics, worry is probably the number one reason why we choose not to fast. Worry about the pain of hunger, Worry about whether or not we'll have the strength to do what we have to do today if we don't eat for that certain period of time. Worry about when our next meal will be every time our stomach growls. Fasting might be well described as disciplined non-worry. I suppose another way to put it is positively as disciplined trust. And here's where it's important to clarify that fasting is different from actual starvation. So there really isn't, it's not of the same, the only thing you have in common with someone who is starving when you are fasting is that you're not eating food at that time. Fasting, by definition, is a time where you don't eat, but food is available, and get this, you know when your next meal will be. You just need to trust that the food will be there when the fast is over. In any kind of fast, in my limited experience of fasting, I found that the thought of it will be there or it's not going anywhere to be very helpful in maintaining the discipline in face of those momentary temptations. Some of you have given up, like, sweets uh, for the season of Lent. And the truth is, and you've discovered this, that, that the, the processed sugar industry is going to be producing those things when you're done with that fast, right? So, so you can say no to those for a little while, because in saying no, that's not saying no forever. Now, now, in some fasts, you might think of like being in recovery with like alcohol and drugs, for instance. That might be seen as a fast, and that's a fast of sobriety for hopefully the rest of your life, because that's where health and life exist but for most of us with fasting you know when your next meal is going to be it's just between now and then dealing with our worry on a fast our hunger pains are temporary and remind us that god will provide but sometimes our obsession with feeding our perceived hunger becomes an obsession uh, that uh, we all experience all we think about is food I want to call your attention to uh, a scene from a beloved movie, a hilarious scene in an otherwise quite serious film, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The hobbit known as Pippin can't contain his worry that on this journey he might not get the food fuel that he's accustomed to. You might recall the dialogue. So Aragorn, Strider, is leading them on a dangerous journey. And he said, Gentlemen, we do not stop until nightfall. And Pippin said, What about breakfast? And Aragon responds, You've already had it. Pippin said, We've had one, yes. What about second breakfast? And his friend Mary says, I don't think he knows about second breakfast, Pip. Now Pippin is really genuinely worried. What about elevensies? Luncheon? Afternoon tea? Dinner? Supper? He knows about them, doesn't he? And Mary said, I wouldn't count on it. We've all got a little pippin in us, don't we? But what about second breakfast? And Jesus says, Don't worry, is not life more than food? Like a journey that is so much more significant than the occasional inconvenience of missing a few meals on the way, the simple, humble trust required by fasting leads us into something that could be much, much more. Jesus moves from his encouragement to not worry into a discussion of how God will provide what we need based on our value in God's eyes. A couple different places. Verse 26, verse 30, and verse 33 of Matthew 6. Jesus brings up the phrase much more. When talking about how God values us. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? In verse 30, he says... If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And finally, the conclusion of this section of the Sermon on the Mount, but seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. God feeds the birds. You're much more valuable. God clothes the fields. God will much more clothe you. Seek first God's kingdom and all these things will be given to you in turn. Seeking God's kingdom first. Fasting is a way of practicing this. Simply In moments when we set aside our food first mentality of minute by minute survival, to focus more intently on God's work in us and around us, there are a couple of questions that might be powerful ones to bring along with us as we fast, even for a brief period of time. That as we are not eating, as the hunger speaks to us, that we might have these questions for God What do you want to say to me, God? What do you want to show me? What do you want me to say to you? How might I open up my heart, my heart of hearts, a bit more to let you in to the true me? How might I lean into your care in the midst of my deep sense of vulnerability? Fasting, it turns out, is an exercise For those of us of little faith. God will provide. So as we conclude. We've learned a few things. We've learned that Jesus said when you fast. In the Sermon on the Mount he reminds us of the basics. No show. It's between us and God. No worries. We trust in God to provide and much more. Seeking God's kingdom first, we discover more than we imagined, and all these things will be given to you as well. Amen.